like to invite you to turn to page 65. Our reading this morning is from Exodus 12, the beginning of the account of the Passover, and also a description of how the people of Israel are to celebrate its memory in the years that come. So that's Exodus 12. I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this reading. Exodus, as you probably know, is the story of the people of God and their exodus or their exit out of Egypt and into the edge, at least, of the promised land, right? And um, the, the background of this is that the people of God moved to Egypt as a result of Jacob and his brothers and him being kind of an important person in Egypt. And so the whole, sort of the whole clan moved to Egypt and they left, they left the land that Abraham had settled. And as it turns out, over the years, their favor fell in that kingdom. The, there were new pharaohs came and over time, the people of God became the slaves of the Egyptians. And slavery was is always horrible. It, it, was, it was always a horrible thing. It always is a horrible thing. And um, the Egyptians, <clears throat> I, I can just imagine that the people of God were, were like building pyramids and things like that, or statues of various Egyptian gods. It's part of all the public and religious works that were going on in, in Egypt. But the Egyptians found in time that um, there were just too many Israelites it was becoming a problem for them. They were numerous. They were, their population was growing really fast. And so the Egyptians kind of had two, two approaches to dealing with this. The first, and this is you hear about it in the story of Moses, was they went through the ranks of the Israelites and started killing all the, all the sons. Moses was one that managed to escape from that, right? They put him in a basket and sent him down the river. But that didn't work because the, the women would have their the sons and they would whisk them away and so uh, it didn't work to, to decimate the, the Israelites that way. And so as Moses is an adult, the, the strategy shifts. And the idea is that the Egyptians will now work the Israelites to death. That's the goal. To make it harder and harder for them to do their work so that they just die from exhaustion. And this is one of the first records that we have in the scripture and even in the whole world of an organized genocide, an attempt to eradicate an entire race from the face of the earth. And this is not an old, this is not a, it's, unfortunately it's not a one-time event in the life of, of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, but worldwide this happens. And slavery is just one of those means by which genocide occurs. Uh, there's, there's many others, but it, it looked like this in Nazi Germany in the 40s and even in the late 30s. It looks like this again in other places in the world. And so what was God's response to this? God's response was, I'm going I'm to get my people out of there. He heard the cries of them. They were crying out to God in anguish. And so um, this would be an interesting trip down memory lane from Sunday school. But God sent ten plagues, or what are known as mighty acts, against the Egyptians, and particularly to get the attention of, of Pharaoh so that he would let the people go. And this is what they were. The first was that he turned water into blood in the Nile. Remember that? Then an infestation of frogs, followed by lice. I think that was probably the worst one, one of the worst ones. We'll, we'll see. Then flying 
insects of other kinds. We're not sure if they were just flies or flying insects, although one tradition has that they were wild beasts that were so numerous they were like flying insects. And they were like bears and panthers and wolves and tigers and lions. It was this long list in the tradition, but maybe just flies. Finally, disease that came to the livestock, which was actually very serious. Boils on the people of Egypt. They had boils on their skin. Number seven is um, probably pretty high on the list of pretty bad. Storms of fire. So fire came out of the sky and landed on Egypt. That was bad. Then locusts. Then darkness covered the land of Egypt, but not the part of Egypt where the Israelites lived, Goshen. And then finally, none of these things were able to move Pharaoh to action to let God's people go. Finally, the tenth mighty act was the death of the firstborn child, male son, of every Egyptian family. That's what finally got the Pharaoh to relent and let God's people go, but not for long. Remember, the, the army then chased them to the edge of the Red Sea. That's the story for next week, the, the story of the Red Sea. We might ask the question, why did it take so many times, right? Why did it take ten plagues, ten mighty acts, for Pharaoh to turn around and finally listen to God? Well, one thing is that it, it's kind of human nature. We don't really like to be corrected, right? We don't like to be told what not to do. We don't like our hand being forced by somebody. And as, you know, we, we look at it as, oh, somebody got corrected for something. Somebody kind of got pushed back a little bit. Well, then they learned their lesson. It's all good now. It'll, it'll work out. It'll be okay. But not with the Pharaoh. He would say, okay, I'll let the people go. But then he would change his mind, and God would keep sending these plagues. And you know what? This, this plays out in the world stage, too. It's playing itself out right now on the world stage. There's countries that take some territory from other countries, and they'll, they'll watch the world and say, are you going to do anything? And the world says, oh, you know, that was bad. We're going to put sanctions on you or something like that. And uh, then they'll push a little bit more, and they'll push a little bit more. And this, this happened in, in World War II, of course. It's probably happening right now. And the world says, well, okay, we'll give you that territory, territory so long as that's really the end of it. Okay, let's make you happy. Then there maybe will be peace. But the reality is that whoever's doing that on the other side, they're never happy. They're never satisfied. They're always going to push until something else happens. And, ch- you know, children are this way. I've noticed that this is kind of like the behavior of a two-year-old. Because we have a two-year-old. I see it every day. That pushes against your rules. Like, don't jump down the stairs or... Um, Go to the bathroom when we tell you to because we know that you need to go to the bathroom or don't throw your food on the floor. And there's almost this point where they're like, you know, and they look at you like they're looking right at you. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? Hmm? And they're, with children, the reality is they want you to do something because boundaries and, and, and sort of getting that feedback makes them feel safe, makes them feel loved. When adults do it, it's kind of weird. I mean, it's kind of like disturbing when you see adults doing it, when Pharaoh does it, when world leaders do it. it it's when adults in, in sort of adult society do it, it's, it's troubling when they do that. With children, it's understandable. Why not make one fair, sort of try to redeem Pharaoh just a little bit, is that God had a hand in Pharaoh's recalcitrance 
in this too. It says in the scriptures, and this is a topic for another time, that in, through some of these trials, God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. And it says in the scriptures that God did that so that God could continue to show his power to the world, and particularly to his own people. We'll, we could look at that some other day. And there's more to say about this passage, but I'm going to say it after we read it. Let's go to the reading now. Uh, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14, page 65. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the fourteenth day of the month when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire, head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt." I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's something that we probably just need to talk about straight up, which is this is a horrifying part of Scripture. Okay, I think sometimes we romanticize certain parts of Scripture that are really pretty horrible. I can think of, for example, the story of Noah's Ark. Like you have that on the picture of you have that picture of Noah's Ark in the nursery for a child because it has all these cute animals in it. But you kind of forget that Noah's Ark had to be built because God was wiping out an entire population of people. I think sometimes this story is kind of the same way. Yes, God does deliver his people from slavery, but at the expense of a great number of people who are killed by God. This is hard. Let's just be honest, it's hard. Some of the people who are, are killed in this are probably young, young people, young children. Really probably innocent as far as we understand it, right? And yet God does this. Um, 
I, and I can't explain that completely. It probably is not something I'm able to do. Probably not something all, any of us are able to do completely. I, I think it's something that God will probably explain to us when we get to heaven. But I want to keep this in mind throughout. And I think this is the thread that I want to use to hold all of this together. Is that, in general, God is willing to shed blood to free his people from slavery and death. I'm going to say that again. God is willing to shed blood to free his people from slavery and death. Now, one way we could look at it is that this slaughter of the firstborn of Egypt is kind of an answer to the genocide and the slavery that Egypt did to his people, to God's people. Um, back then, and we saw, see it more actually after the Israelites go wandering in the wilderness and they receive the law, there is this sense in the Old Testament that an eye for an eye. You destroyed all the male sons of the Israelites when Moses was a baby, and now the angel of death is coming through your country and doing the same to you. Pastor Zach spoke about this, and actually he made a very good point, which is totally true, that an eye for an eye in the Old Testament is actually about justice for those who have no justice. In, in old cultures, and even today, if you have money, you can buy justice. If you have power, you can create your own justice because you can, you can control justice. But if you have neither money nor power, it's a very rare society that will give you any kind of justice whatsoever. It's very rare to find a society that will give justice to somebody who doesn't have money or for power. And so an eye for an eye was actually a way of protecting the weak. It was a way of saying a very poor person with no land and no connections, if they die, their life is just as valuable as somebody who has all those things. And so a way, in a way, it was a form of justice. But nonetheless, that's what God said to his people back then, an eye for an eye, even though it was a protection for the weak. And so perhaps in here, God is answering the genocide of the Egyptians and their slavery by his own uh, power and force. And you could even say that God is speaking on behalf of those who are in slavery. He's saying, I will not forget you. I will do, I will keep escalating the response to your oppression until I get you out of there. This speaks to God's care for those who are in slavery, for those who cannot free themselves from what they're in. And I want you to think ahead a little bit because there's different kinds of slavery, aren't there? There's actual physical slavery, and that's happening, which is tragic, in our world right now. People who are trafficked in this country, in this county, there are thousands of people who are victims of human trafficking. Worldwide, there are millions of people who are victims of human trafficking. We call it human trafficking now, but it's still slavery. You belong to somebody else. You have to do what they make you do. God cares about those who are enslaved. And, it, and at least that's a word of justice and hope for them, that God is willing to do whatever it takes to free them. But again, I would say this leaves me with kind of a difficult feeling about God. Why would he kill in answer to killing? Why would he use blood to free his people from slavery? 
But that's what I have to remember. God is willing to shed blood to free his people from slavery and from death. And the thing that's striking about this is that God nowhere apologizes for this in Exodus. He never says, I hate to do this, but. He never says that. He says, I'm doing this. I'm freeing you. I'm getting you out of, out of there. And he also doesn't say, well, now that that's done, let's sort of sweep it under the rug of history. That was kind of an awkward, difficult thing that we all had to go through together when we killed the Egyptians. So let's just leave it back there and forget about it, you know, because we got you through it. They learned their lessons. You learned your lesson. Let's move on with it. Almost the entire passage that we just read is actually God telling his people, don't forget this at all. Do not forget what I did for you here. Talk about it all the time. Tell your children about it. One of the reasons this is written is because a child might say, why do we do this? Why do we have these customs? The answer is because the Lord took us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. So God's not interested in sweeping it under the rug of history. He's interested in it being commemorated all the time. So much so, in fact, that uh, God reset the entire calendar of his people around this event. This is sort of like New Year's week or New Year's Day. This is what he says to Moses and Aaron. Whatever calendar you had up to this point, this event here is the beginning of your year. This is the most important date on your year's calendar, and we're going to put it on there. And so that's what they do. The 14th day of Nisan is the beginning, or the the month Nisan is the beginning of the year. By the way, and you'll see, you notice perhaps that God said, on the 10th day, you set aside this lamb, you take care of it for four days, and then on the 14th day, you begin to celebrate this feast together. And this is just sort of a, Kind of an explanation of of how God's people did their festivals. But if you look through the scriptures, almost all the festivals that God tells his people to observe take place on the 14th day of the month. The reason for that is that the first day of the month, it was a lunar calendar, not like our calendar. We have a very different calendar. They had a lunar calendar. Every time they saw a new moon, that was a new month. And a new moon was the day when you don't really see the moon. It's just very dark. 14 days after the new moon is more or less halfway through a lunar cycle of about 29 days. On the 14th day of the month, the moon is full. And the party that you start that day can go late, late, late into the evening because God wants his people to celebrate. So God makes a provision for this. Even in the calendar and in the seasons and in the patterns of time for his people, he says, I want you to do this on a day when you can celebrate good and long and hard and remember what I did for you this day when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. So all in here is this story. It's just a few verses about how God comes through the Egyptians but a lot of verses about how he wants his people to commemorate it, how he wants his people to celebrate it. And there's some of the things that he says. Um, Share the animal that you have with a family that doesn't have enough animal for them. Lambs, lambs, young lambs and young goats were valuable. Not every family had access to one. If you have one, but your neighbor doesn't, go find your neighbor. 
and divide it up. Figure out how many people are going to eat it and divide it up so that everybody at least gets a bite. So the, the part of the feast was about community. Part of the feast was about sharing with those that didn't have it. It was interesting. And then the other thing was this thing about eating in a hurry, right? He says, eat with your staff in your hand because you're about to jump out the door. As soon as you're done with that meal, you, you burn what's left and you run out the door. And the bread that you make for this meal, you do not have time to do dough that has yeast in it because you have to wait for that to rise and then you have to push it down again, wait for it to rise again, and then bake it. You don't have time for that. Don't put yeast in your dough. Just bake it as it is. You get this flat bread that really doesn't taste that great. It tastes like a really hard cracker. It doesn't taste good at all. I don't know anyone who likes matzo. I don't know. I, it's, it's, but it's traditional. That's the tradition. You're in a hurry. You've got to get out the door. Leave nothing behind. Burn it all up because you're not coming back to Egypt. That's kind of the point. You cannot linger in your house. Once God says go, you're free from slavery, you're done with that place. You have to go to the next country. This works on many levels. It worked on a physical level with the Israelites. They had to leave Egypt. They had to leave, and they did. On a spiritual level, it works for us too. When God frees you from the slavery of sin, you got to leave. you got to go in that moment, and you have to go in a way where you don't look back at what's behind you. You leave it behind. You go to a new country. This kind of came home to us just recently. My siblings and I were together. As I said, we split up um, some really interesting keepsakes of my mother's. Kind of took turns picking my oldest. The oldest sibling went first. I went last. And then we just kept cycling around. And towards the end, we were like, oh, you should take this. This seems like it's more important to you. And we split it all up. But we also sold my mother's house. It sold. It closed escrow on Friday. It got recorded at the county. It is not in the estate anymore. And so part of our time there was getting everything else out of her house that we couldn't take with us. And a lot of it, thank goodness, her church is going to have a rummage sale. Please, let's not have a rummage sale. But her church is going to have a rummage sale. And so some people from her church came with trucks, and we borrowed some trucks, and we took it all up to somebody's garage, who's like a saint, who let us put all this junk in their garage until the rummage sale in October. And so we got, almost every, we got everything out of the house. But we had to start making some decisions. There's some stuff that's left. Should we throw it in the trash? Should we leave it for the new owners? So if it was cleaning supplies, we left it under the sink. We left a few hangers in the closets. But more or less, we just left the house. And we also knew that we couldn't take much time to think about it too long. We just couldn't. We had to do it. We sold the house. We left a few things in it. The rest we threw in the trash. The rest went to the rummage sale. And whatever, I came home with two suitcases. That's it. I mailed myself a box full of slides. So that's coming sometime soon. I'm going to have to digitize them somehow. But that's just what it was like. It was like, we cannot go back to this house. It belongs to somebody else now. We have to leave it. We have to get everything out, out of it that we care about. And whatever we don't care about, we have to throw away or leave it for the new people. And we're done. This is what it's like when God rescues us from the slavery of sin. He says, put your staff in your hand. Eat in a hurry. Tuck your belt, your shirt into your belt because you've got to start running. You cannot stay in that old house anymore. You're done. 
you got to leave it. There's a whole new world. There's a whole new land waiting for you out there. You're going to have to trust me to get to it. But you're done here. You're done here. We're going to see in two weeks' time that that's easier said by God than done by God's people. Because in this very strange way, God's people will look back and say, gosh, I really miss the genocide of slavery because the food back there was so good. That's insane. But yet they say it. And it's not all that surprising because I look back at the death of sin fondly myself. And I say, oh, there were some tasty meals back there. God says, eat this meal with your staff in your hand, with bread that hasn't had time to rise. Don't leave anything in that house because you can't go back to it. You won't go back to it. You may want to, but you're not going to go back. God is willing to shed blood to free his people from slavery and death. Now the time for an eye for an eye, that time came to an end. We find that on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe because human nature was so corrupt that it never really produced the kind of justice that God wanted it to anyways. So God had to do something fundamentally different about this problem of slavery. Slavery to sin and death. In Jesus Christ, he changed how he would redeem people from slavery. And he continues to be willing to shed blood to free his people. Only this time it's a different blood. And it's a different firstborn son who sheds it. He doesn't want to sweep the horror of Good Friday under the carpet of history either, does he? It's just like the Passover. He doesn't say, well, Good Friday was kind of a difficult day for us all. Let's try to forget it. Let's try to move on from it. I think we all learned our lesson on Good Friday. I think, I think let's just let it be. No. He says, remember it. Remember Good Friday. Remember your Passover when the angel spared you. He says, remember it. Celebrate it. Put it on the table. Eat it. Drink it. All the time, taste the bitter pain of a father's loss. But also taste the sweetness of his love for the world. Taste it. Drink it. This is a love that redeems you and me from death, from the slavery of sin, and opens up to us a new life and a new land to go into. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, even for difficult passages in scripture. Thank you that you are willing to shed blood to save your people from slavery and death. Amen.